Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Claire Patrika Riding, Head of the Manufacturing Sector and the Planning and Environmental Team at Erwin Mitchell. And I'll be your host today as we discuss the route to net zero in the UK's manufacturing sector. I'm delighted to be joined today by Andy Greenall and Jason Richards. So over to them to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Andy Greenall. I'm the Director and Head of the RSK Nature Positive uh, Carbon and Sustainability Team. I've been working for probably about 15 years on various things, carbon and energy related. Jason Richards um, from uh, the Silcott Leadham Group. I'm the Managing Director. Um, Silcott Leadham Group specialises in mechanical and electrical um, consultancy design. Um, But more specifically for this talk, um, we also have a company called Zero Energy Design, who are net zero carbon consultants and building physics modelling team. Great stuff. And welcome to you both. It's been uh, great to have you on board today. So let's set the scene. It is reported that in 2020, 16% of the UK's emissions came from the manufacturing sector. And it's even been suggested that this figure will set to rise in 2021 and 2022 when those figures are released. In addition, out of the 2,000 companies which have registered science-based targets, only 75 of those are from the manufacturing sector. There seems to be a lot of disparity in the sector say, for example, the food and drink subsector outperforms others in its drive towards science-based targets. And perhaps this is more to do with its consumer focus. But overall, the picture is one of confusion and complexity in the sector. Lloyds Bank has recently undertaken some research of SME manufacturers on their attitudes towards net zero and where they are on their journey. And it's really interesting reading. So Lloyds found that 87% of manufacturers knew what net zero meant for their business. but Nearly four-fifths of the respondents said that the energy cost crisis has had a negative impact on their route to net zero. So out of all the the respondents, um, only 7% said that they were already at net zero, with the largest group beginning to monitor their carbon emissions. But at least 13% said that they're only researching and at 5% said that they weren't thinking about it at all. So with the sector showing some hesitancy into formalising net zero, what can we do to encourage more in this sector to go on this journey? So Andy, turning to you first, what is the current relationship between the sector and sustainability? And do you find it something businesses are prioritising more um, at this current time? I, th- I think I think the first thing to clarify is what you mean by sustainability, because it's one of those words that can, 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 can have a lot of different meanings depending on who's asking it. Um, I think if we're talking about net zero and greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it, it's certainly something businesses are keen to be seen to be prioritising more. But I, I, th- I think you touched on a key point in a couple of words in your question there. The energy cost crisis is really caused a lot of organisations to be in firefighting mode and re-evaluating their priorities. And while I think a lot of companies and certainly manufacturers would like to be doing more to to, to prioritise decarbonisation and net zero, I think at the moment it's 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 all hands on deck for the. Uh, uh, for, the, for the for the for the getting through the the current pinch points around costs. Um, that said, there's still there, there still is an alarming amount of basic measures like um, greenhouse gas assessment and reporting and energy efficiency that that, that companies could could still address. Um, so I, I certainly current economic distractions certainly haven't helped in that regard. Um, but I think a lot of companies do know what they need to be doing. It's just finding the, the requisite bandwidth and resource to be to be getting on with it. And Jason, how about yourselves? Yeah, I suppose our primary focus is kind of on um, the building and the process that's going on inside it. 
um, which sort of limits us a bit more to the scope one and two um, emissions. So I think what we're seeing is a lot of the big, you know, corporate companies are, are really moving this forward because they've got the financial weight behind them to do it. Um, and they're very driven. And in terms of their governance, it's a very much a top down approach. So um, we do a lot of work in the food and drink sector as part of the manufacturing industry. And we're certainly seeing them sort of leading the way, which kind of backed up by the statistics. I think. Um, you know, financially, when it comes down to some of the SMEs, which you touched on, they are finding it harder. Um, but I think, as Andy said, you know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. We can uh, we can help them with a stepped approach. So, you know, we we can start uh, start with, with with one area, one um, of their particular scopes that they want to focus on. You know, and that might just be the energy efficiency and the carbon emissions within their building and trying to get any building stock or processes, you know, move towards net zero situation. So that's only going to help with the current pinch points in terms of finance, because it's going to not necessarily reduce their energy bills, but it's certainly going to help with them to a certain extent as part of the decarbonisation process. Yeah, I just 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 chipping. I think you made a really good point in the question there, which is that the, the, some of the sectors that are ahead, like food and drink, that's where there's 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 clear more visibility and clearer consumer pressure that isn't perhaps being brought to bear to quite the same degree on on some of the other manufacturing sectors yet, in a way that it has been for food and drink. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that you're you're right on that visibility front. I think that because there's a lot of consumer um, pressure, and I think that that's that's why they've um, taken the charge on that. Um, and and some of them, they are the, the the large corporates that Jason had alluded to earlier as well. That there's probably more financial capital, um, say for Coca-Cola, to um, start on its journey then. But uh, what are some other quick wins do we think for manufacturers? What are the or what are the main obstacles for the manufacturers trying to achieve net zero? Is it because as you said earlier, Andy, sustainability is so big um, and so wide that is there you just look at it and you think, oh, goodness, it's like running a marathon, isn't it? Oh, you know, I wouldn't be able to run a marathon, but I probably could jog to the shops. But, you know, if I carried on a little bit longer or you know, if I kept running to the shops, I might be able to just get a little bit further each time. Is it are we in that kind of situation? Yeah, I think I think it's worse than that. I think it's it's like trying to run five marathons at the same time. It's literally physically impossible. I mean, it's it's about prioritisation and, and, and picking your battles and finding the, the, the relatively straightforward quick wins. I mean, there has until quite recently been a lot of a, a lack of clarity around the definition of what net zero means. The term net zero has been thrown around and it's become quite sexy and chic and you know, companies just like to refer to it. But it, it was until quite recently when the Science Based Targets Initiative grabbed hold of it. And I'll come back to that in a minute. It's It's been really quite wild west. You know, it, companies could use terms like net zero in let's be generous and say pretty high level ways uh, and, and, and go quite unchallenged um, and what happened a couple of um, couple of years, well, a year and a half ago now, that is the Science Based Targets Initiative sort of grabbed hold of the term net uh, net zero and gave it gave it their definition of, of, of what 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 was meant by that, and that's that's really starting to gain a lot of traction, which has really helped. It's still quite a wild west, and you do still need to check what companies mean when they say when they start talking about net zero, but uh, um, generally speaking, it's it's now perceived to be a you know halving of emissions by 2030, 90 percent reduction by 2050, and offsetting strictly, strictly, strictly reserved only for residual emissions after you've done the deep cuts and not in any sense any kind of substitute for business as usual. Yeah, and I think 
you know, to sort of emphasise that one of the problems for us at a building level um, is that we've had no targets across multiple sectors. So we have we had sectors defined, you know, really early on by Letty for um, offices, for schools, for residential buildings, um, you know, but but things like we, we do a lot of work in, 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 in other manufacturing areas and science and technology. Um, there were no defined targets. What was the energy use intensity supposed to be for the building in order to move it to net zero? So hopefully um, there is an initiative that this summer there will be um, targets coming out across multiple sectors. So Zed have been kind of providing data on buildings that we've already modelled in different sectors um, kind of into the pot. Um, and, and we're hoping that there'll be some more guidance on that. And that's just, you know, that's like the 10K out of the the five marathons um, that, that, that Andy mentioned. And I think, you know, so what I guess what we do is if a client comes to us and say, look, we've got to run these five marathons at once. So we, we it, you know, if we're going to help them, what we need to do is we need to break it down. So it's like it's like saying, right, well, there's five marathons. You, you need at least five people because one person can't split themselves between two of those. And then each person needs a training program. They need a schedule to follow in order to build up to that marathon. And and like you said, Claire, you know, it might be I'm going to run to the shops this morning and then tomorrow I'm going to carry on to the post office. But, you know, we can kind of break it down into manageable chunks so that um, you can see a route to the end. Because, you know, at the minute, 2050 seems an inordinate way off. But actually, when you break it down, how many steps it takes to run five marathons, that's a lot of steps to take to get there. So um, so making slow and steady progress is kind of really important. And that, that's where we're able to kind of help them see through the fog a bit uh, and, and, and find the route to get there. And also, when you start thinking in terms of CapEx procurement cycles, 2015, certainly 2030, aren't necessarily all that long away at all. I mean, one of the the big, probably the big, if you had to pick one decarbonisation challenge for the manufacturing sector, um, I, I think Jason and I agree on this, it would probably be heat decarbonisation. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's, yes, it's a technical challenge, but it's it, it's also very much an economic challenge because, you know, that while the technology exists to generate the, the heat from electricity in a way that's, that's or frequently we're talking about steam, that's traditionally been generated by um, natural gas fire plant, uh, just the the costs just aren't aren't there at the moment, just because of the cost disparity between um, gas and electricity, and that's something that can, in my view, can only really be addressed and incentivised at it, it, it sort of national or international level uh, policy, which is quite frustrating for for the organisations involved because they want to step in, they know what the right thing to do to make the changes, and 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 and, and the bottom line just isn't allowing it, no matter how forward looking you 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 might be. Going back to the SMEs. Um... I was working on a project called BASI, which was boosting access for SMEs to energy efficiency with BASE um, as part of the government. And so part of that was, again, making it a stepped plan. So even the decarbonisation of heat, making it available in modules. So you could buy one, two, three, four modules, you know, and you could bolt another module on as you could afford it because the SMEs just just didn't have the resources to be able to do it in one go and kind of that was that was maybe three years ago I was working on that and at that time you know the 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 price gap between electricity and gas kind of 
wiped out the improvements in in energy efficiency that we were achieving. So they were paying the same amount for much less electricity as they were paying for a lot more gas. And we decarbonized it, but there was no payback on their capital expenditure or very limited. And so, you know, they wanted something that paid back, that they got financial benefit from, that they could see an end to paying off, not just kind of this massive capital expenditure. And then, well, my, 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 my kind of energy bills have not gone down, but why would I do it? And until it's kind of mandated or until they until they're getting close enough to the deadlines that they're like forced to do it in order to keep going, um, then I think perhaps something needs to change to to create that momentum. And in terms then, because obviously you've both spoken um, or you briefly touched upon the cost versus benefit argument, there are various government funding programmes. Um, I think you know there was there, there was some last year out of these. Do you think that they the government doesn't do enough to advertise the funding programs that people can get access to to be able to decarbonize their buildings or their operations is there more that could be done to help them with the cost versus benefit argument we've just been doing some um, funding applications with a university so to decarbonize a gas-fired district heat network uh, and to actually put ground source heat pumps in um, because they're sitting over an aquifer um, and so we can tap into the um, the constant temperature of the water beneath, you know, as a, as a really kind of great um, source of heating and cooling for the buildings. Um, but the the actual grant application process was, you know, involved a cost consultant, a client team, an architect, um, a net zero carbon consultant, an M&E consultant. And so, you know, the actual cost and amount of effort and time to put the applications in um, is, you know, uh, is off-putting to someone that's got to pay for those, all of those professional people. So, um, you know, and the level of scrutiny on them is, you know, rightly that the, there's an appropriate level, but, you know, there, there was a... They can't be the people that are assessing them aren't experts in all the technologies. So there was some misunderstanding even in the comments that were fed back, um, you know, from the from the grant body on that. But I think, you know, making it there almost needs to be like a first step where you can do a, a quick, a quick one pager and someone will say, right, okay, yes, we think it's worth going to the next stage, you know, because then there's a there's a big investment to even apply for the grant funding. Um, so, it, you know, it is out there, but people are having to kind of delve for it. And some of the old schemes that, you know, people really kind of took advantage of and, you know, not took advantage of, but made the most of, um, like the feeding tariffs, like the renewable heat incentive, you know, have all gone now. So um, it, 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 we, we almost need the next layer of those easy to access grants to come in. Um, in order to boost things, and the next order of magnitude in terms of budgets as well. I mean, I'm 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 looking at the UK's industrial decarbonisation strategy got up on my screen at the moment. So I think it was published in late 2021. So maybe slightly superseded now. But you know, there's 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 various funding pots available for certain elements of energy innovation, and they're measured in the millions or the tens of millions. And this is not a a million pound problem. This is this is a bit you know we should be thinking in terms of billions. 
um, you know, there's some a, a, a few small ring fence pots of, of, of a few tens of millions of quid here and there isn't isn't going to solve the problem, unfortunately. Yeah, it's uh, funding is yeah certainly an issue. And then you both touched upon as well. Then so we've got a funding issue, but you know, Jason, you've already said that to go through the sort of funding applications, but also just to have people assess some practical solutions and and assess the. Um, emissions, but then also have a design that's built in with um, a design of a building or um, some technical expertise in relation to how you can offset and decarbonize operations. With all these people that's required, is there a skills gap in either there's too few people in the market delivering these services? And is there a skills gap in technical expertise to be able to deliver the solutions at the moment? Yeah, I definitely think there is. What we see quite a lot of is very often a client will go to, um, you know, a, an installer um, because they'll do a free quotation. So that we get a lot of examples maybe on renewable generation. Let, let, let's just use PV for an example. Uh, you know, we want 500 square metres of PV um, and they'll go straight straight to a PV installer. They'll come to site, they'll do it, they'll look at it, they'll give you a quote for free. So um, that's great. It's, it's never for free, is it? Because that cost's just lumped into the installation. So if you commission the installation, you've paid for the design and you've paid for the survey and everything else. But what we see kind of RSK as a business is that is that that's fine if that's what the client really needed. Um, so the skills gap and maybe it's not just the, the skills are there, but it is a gap in the process is, well, what do you actually need? You know, what 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 do you actually need? Would it be not better to do um, some wind turbine and some PV to give you all year round generation? Oh, well, we've not thought about that. We just we just knew we could get some PV on the roof. OK, so it's really looking at a holistic approach and kind of having that initial feasibility to make sure that they're doing, you know, reducing as much the energy uh, as possible, and and then the provision of uh, of renewables, or you know, the decarbonize the size of the decarbonized heat source could be less. So it's about getting the, the that skill set right across the board and getting some holistic good advice up front. Um, but there's but but as a kind of professional industry, we charge for that up front. So what we're trying to do is get a model where there's like a a really high level bit that we can kind of semi-automate and deliver and give some good advice and some food for thought and then if the client wants to move forward into more of a feasibility type situation you know that that, that we can adopt that um, and that seems that seems to be quite successful so far um, I think one of the technical areas that we see is on the heat pump side so obviously the government had a big heat a push for heat pumps for homes um, but uh, and this is a good example, and it's as much applicable to, to industry and manufacturing as it is to domestic situations. Um, there were the, the, the local plumber that was being fit in the gas boiler expertly and radiators and joining it all together with pipe work for 25 years and doing an amazing job and it never leaked and it never failed. All of a sudden is just trying to install a heat pump in the same way um, and it just doesn't work. So, you know, it, it works on different temperatures. So pipe sizes are different, emitter size, radiator sizes need to be different. Um, and the whole design of the kind of 
heat generating end is a very different entity. So if you kind of just take a product and expect anyone to be able to install it, it just doesn't work. So making sure the designs are right and then the installations are done by people that understand the design and the end result is kind of something that's catching up with the heat pump side of the industry. And is that something that resonates with you, Andy, as well? Is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, it's yeah. There, there are skills gaps. And so, yeah, I'm going to agree with everything Jason's just said. I mean, it's, some of it's understandable because this is new technology and transferable skills can 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 only get you so far. I mean, where, where we're seeing it on the, the, the carbon evaluation and sort of top level decarbonisation side of things is um, there's belatedly, but very welcomed, uh, a lot of focus on embodied carbon in the built environment at the moment. Um, but um, there's there's quite a shortfall in people, for instance, who who understand design and what's capable, uh, what what is technically feasible and possible, but also the the carbon side. You know, people like Jason really, who who, who can think in terms of carbon and also think in terms of design. You know, people like with with that sort of broad skill base are pretty thin on the ground, understandably, because it's a relatively new requirement. But but there's certainly an urgent need for uh, design teams to better understand carbon. Yeah, I think we're seeing we're seeing the shift. You know, moving and contractors getting up to speed. Um, uh, uh, particularly the big contractors, you know, kind of embracing it and the new levels. Because what you what you can't do is just build a building in the way that it's always been built for the last 20 years. It's got to be built now in a different way. So the details are different. The way we create the kind of air permeability barrier um, and seal the building is different. The details around the windows and the way the insulation finishes is different. And so if you just carry on trying to do it, and it's interesting, I drive around and still loads of people doing kind of extensions on the houses. And it's like, oh, no, how come this is how come this is still happening? And, you know, we did an extension that ended up just almost in lockdown. But it was like, you know, what? Look, the, the, you've got to tape the, the insulation boards together you can't just leave gaps in it but just with because that's what you always did um so there is a there is a shift and it is changing um and there's some great examples you know of people that are embracing this when they're in the built environment we were working on a new pathology building um in leeds which is currently on site and um it's been through uh sort of, sort of the the trust the teaching hospital trust have got you know strict KPIs on net zero, and um, some of the material changes that we made, um, referring back to the embodied carbon that Andy talked about, was um, in the concrete. So it's um, we've removed removed cement. We've got cement replacements to reduce the carbon in the concrete. Carbon and steel, like two worst offending materials ever invented, but like used so widely. So. Um, there was a big retaining wall that had to be um, cast, uh, and it was the the program was such that it didn't allow for the extra drying time associated with the low carbon concrete. So luckily, the contractors, a really diligent contractor, really good, um, rang up and said, "Jason, we're going to have to change the concrete. How does that impact, you know, the 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 targets for the embodied carbon?" We reran the calculations and we were like. Trouble is, it's a lot of concrete, and it does. Um, so they, what they did was they went away and like spent a massive amount of brain power reworking the whole construction program 
in order to still allow for the low carbon concrete in the retaining wall. And so they came back and said, look, we've managed to reschedule how we build this building. We're going to do it differently to how we normally do it so that we can use this low carbon concrete. So that's like, you know, that's, that's, what, that's what gets me out of bed on the morning when we are making a change. And that was just one small bit of the building. But we changed lots of small bits and made lots of steps and, and it will result in a much, you know, lower carbon building, both in terms of embodied carbon as it's being built um, and maintained and also the operational carbon associated with the energy used in it. So when manufacturers come to design their buildings, if they're looking at ways to decarbonise their operations, but also obviously then looking at how they can decarbonise the actual building. But when it comes to their supply chains, what can they do? Um, so what can what do businesses need to build into their strategies to ensure sustainability? I know we're talking about that huge word again um, throughout their supply chains. Um, if I come to Andy first um, on that one. Yeah, interesting question. Very topical, um, partly because of the science-based targets initiative, which we mentioned earlier. So, so what what we're seeing is a big end user. Let's 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 say a larger retailer signs up for a science-based target, which in, entails a, probably something around a halving of scope three emissions by twenty thirty. It's obviously pretty pretty ambitious. Uh, and then they find that the only way they can realistically meet that is by is by pushing the decarbonisation requirement back up the supply chain. Obviously, you do what you can do in house. Nobody's suggesting that companies don't 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 try and you know, look after their own scope one and two emissions, of course not, but a lot of it will be in, especially for, you know, sort of end of chain retailers, will be in the supply chain. So it becomes absolutely critical. Um, it's best approaches as, a, as, a, as a, a series of steps. Obviously, you can't just suddenly convert your supply chain into a, to a low carbon value chain overnight. That's not how things work. But um, um, the, actually, the NHS has just published a quite an interesting um, blueprint for this so that they're setting out a, a series of actions over the next three four five years that they're going to expect pe people providing goods and services to, to take so they they'll, they'll they'll need to have a, a robust carbon footprint and a decarbonization commitment of their own uh, and and then effectively product carbon footprint labeling and that's not quite what they name it as but that, that's what that's what it is in practice um, and then a, a decarbonisation trajectory um, over time. So the, the, those are your three or four big steps. You need to work out how you, who your biggest suppliers are. Don't try and engage with the entire supply chain because you'll, you'll um, find yourself washing washing data. Uh, find out what the uh, what what the biggest carbon hotspots in the supply chain are, and then work with those particular suppliers of those particular products or services to 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 get on a decarbonisation trajectory. And just be really really clear with the communication that that there will be um, expectations around. Uh, moving the dial downwards on carbon. I think um, Andy's totally right. It's got to be like a top-down sort of approach, um, and there's got to be a clearly defined route that um, the supply chain can follow. Uh, it, it's always kind of difficult sometimes to get supply chain to come on board with it. Um, you know, in our sort of in the building services sector where we specialise, um, a lot of the supply chain, you know, still don't have the data to feed into the, the carbon calculations, you know, and that's fundamental in them catching up. Again, it's always the bigger ones that do it first and it then slowly filters down. But um, what we might see is um, people being struck off supply chains if they don't comply, because, you know, this will be, it. well, it is legislative, it's not kind of optional. Um, I know in the NHS, when they'd looked at, 
you know, what are the worst offenders, not just our largest suppliers, but what's what are the suppliers that bring the biggest carbon impact or the products that bring one of the biggest carbon impacts? And I think in the NHS, that was like the inhalers, you know, an asthma inhaler or um, anything that kind of had that propellant in that you you, you take and you breathe. Um, and so that was one of the first things that they were going to look at because that had such an impact on carbon um, and it was such a widely used kind of product. So it's it's not just about necessarily the largest provider in your supply chain, but what what which supplier has the largest carbon impact on on what you do. Um, and, and it has to filter down. You know, we've got to get those targets and the metrics um, so that so that they can be advised down to the supply chain so that they you know they need to know what they must do in order to continue doing business with the nhs or with whoever it is that you know uh, that, that is is procuring the the goods and services um we, we've kind of signed up to it as as rsk um and and, and andy's highlighted that we we will have challenges with the, the supply chain and so um, we, we're really aware that we need to work really hard in order to make sure that that's not the bit that kind of lets us down or that's not the bit that fails. So um, it is a big challenge and it will be difficult, but we, we, we kind of have to make it work. There's there's a sort of slight element of safety in numbers as well, because it, it might be tempting to think, especially if you're not a particularly big company and you you were talking to a very big supplier. Oh, what what difference is my my request, my voice for low, for low carbon goods and services and better data going to what difference is that going to make? But then if every other SME is also doing that, asking the same question, things will things will change quite um quite quickly. You know, there's, there's, we're seeing it in the construction sector at the moment, as Jason's just touched on, you know. 18 months ago, it was considered really going above and beyond to have a good carbon footprint for a specific um construction product and that's not really the case anymore and it's certainly not going to be the case at all in 18 months time it's going to be an expectation um the other thing to touch on here of course is the, the potential price premium and it, 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 it could be a necessity to accept that in the short term there might be a, a cost premium associated with low carbon goods and services but of course we want to move to a point where all goods and services are relatively low carbon uh, that, that's, that's 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 the big prize where you, you know whether that's that's the only the only game in town we see it as well, you know, sometimes now, even just to get on a tender list, you, you you need to be declaring that level of information, that level of commitment. Um, and so the more that's mandated through the supply chain, the more the supply chain will be forced to make those changes. You know, I think I think Andy's right. There might we might see some short term increases um, in in costs, but we saw that when the government mandated the level two BIM. So that's the, the building information modeling where we were now all of a sudden not just kind of working in 3D and coordinating it, but we were actually putting data into the um, into the model that was then handed on at various stages. And, and there was a learning curve with it and there was a cost increase with it. But that slowly leveled out over time. The more um, the more everybody picked it up, the better we got at it. And it, it was just the same. The biggest companies picked it up first because they could afford to and because they not always just because they could afford to but they had somebody that could see this business strategy associated with doing it and someone that could look at the bigger picture of things um so we do we are seeing this and we are seeing it we saw it a lot in um kind of through covid and where manufacturing and distribution in particular 
Um, so, you know, when everything went to now, we all get stuff delivered. It's all delivered in diesel vans. But anyway, um, it, a lot of it, a lot of the distribution centres were really pushing to be net zero carbon, um, you know, and to really reduce the carbon footprint. Um, and so, you know, it had to start at that end. And then in, if we're going to cover off all the scope emissions, then it needs to lead through to, you know, it's delivered in an electric vehicle. Although uh, electric vehicles is something that I won't touch on because I have my own personal <laughs> opinions on the embodied carbon in the batteries and the motors and how many miles you need to drive to offset that. But anyway, so, yeah, it it, it, it will it will filter through, um, but it will take some time. I suppose it's one of those, isn't it, that whoever goes first has got that premium that they're paying because they're the ones that are the the initiator of it is there a way of of collaborating between the sector between different organizations in the sector are we seeing that more is it a case that where actually some of the larger organizations that have gone first is there a way of them knowledge sharing to be able to help this the SMEs in the in the sector to be able to share that the knowledge and the steps that they've taken. You're both smiling. I'm just, laughing, I, I, so I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm just laughing at the absolutely epic eye roll Jason just did. <laughs> uh, well, shall I go? I'll, I'll follow up. My, absolutely, there is, and it could be done. Um, I, I suppose from our focus in construction historically, it's we've all been very protective of um you know uh, our uh, intellectual property um we are that is changing and it is shifting because it has to and we are working more collaboratively now which you know is quite refreshing um to be honest um and if we can i think we were all scared that someone found a mistake in something we'd done and we were paying so much for our pi cover and um you know it it could impact on the business and uh, it could impact on reputation and it but you know what if someone does find a mistake or a discrepancy before things are built before things are on site before we're using too much carbon um and as a team we can correct it then surely that's better i know that's like a really naive kind of uh, ideal world view but the more i see it happening the the more we're getting our buildings to site you know with fewer defects with fewer problems with easier installations and you know what more importantly more safely delivered health and safety is improving as a result of that collaboration so if we can do more of it to drive down the carbon footprint in and the um, and the, and the energy use of buildings then it's only a really positive thing and also, it's it's an obvious point, but one that sometimes needs reiterating. The the whole point of the entire decarbonisation industry is, is is to decarbonise. And if Company A decarbonises and Company B doesn't, we still got catastrophic runaway climate change staring us in the face. You know, it's it, there's 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 no good us sitting there smugly saying, oh, well, we we're net zero. How about the rest of you? You know, and and th and this applies doubly so when. <laughs> You, you see things like outsourcing a company might outsource its operations and then and actually it's got a lower carbon footprint whereas actually all that's happened is it's just moved move carbon around the uh, around the supply chain you know we we need to remember occasionally that the object of all of this is to is, is to combat climate change uh, and you know the climate doesn't care where the carbon is emitted it just needs it to needs it to be emitted less and in smaller numbers it applies nationally as well you know you you, you can 
you, you, you can apply the same. It's not good the UK meeting its net zero commitments if no one else does. Um, so we, you know, just shipping all our industry off to China isn't is might make us look good in the short term. It's certainly not going to achieve anything longer term. It's such a good point. <laughs> <laughs> the earth doesn't really care where the carbon is being produced <laughs> the carbon and it's really it's really somewhere. easy to forget this, this this is why i always encourage companies to think in scope three terms not scope one and two terms because if you're thinking of scope one or two terms your direct impact it, it, it it's it's easy to start thinking of in, you know in in ways that become ridiculous when you've got your scope three hat on like, like outsourcing not actually reducing carbon holistically might reduce your carbon um and uh, it sounds obvious, but we I think we all need to be reminded of it now and then. Well, well, the, the, the entire point <laughs> of our whole industry is, is to prevent climate change. And it's, it's, it's not about making the numbers superficially or artificially look smaller. Definitely. So trying to wrap this up then, because this has been a, a whistle stop tour of, of uh, the route to net zero um, in the sector. So some quick wins then what can what's the first step do you think um or if you're already in you know midway through the journey um you're coming up because you you said that you were going to be net zero by 2030 or 2040 but you know that you're not going to get there what should companies be doing now let's end on a quick win positive note andy aim big aim big it's much much better to set a really really bold ambitious strident target and miss it by a few percent than to set to set some 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 piddly little um a minor incremental target and and and, and smash it. It's it's it, and focus on the big stuff. That's the other thing. Prioritization is absolutely key. Just work out where your big emissions areas are and and, and focus on those and, and don't get sidetracked. Good advice, Jason. Yeah, aim for the five marathons. <laughs> uh, look, I broke my back in 1996 and was paralysed. And one of my best friends from school came into hospital and said, "Jason, what are you going to do now?" And I said. I'm going to do the London Marathon. And she burst into tears. She's actually a consultant, a hospital consultant, so medically she knew what I'd done. Um, I, so did I, but I'd worked out that I had to go back to work and I wanted to, and that I was going to move house and all of those things. Um, so I set small steps to hit the big target, um, and I did the London Marathon and I went on to race wheelchairs for Great Britain. So it, they can hit the targets, they can aim for the five marathons, but you've got to have a plan to get there. And sometimes that plan will go wrong. Sometimes you'll, you know, you'll crash your racing wheelchair into a car, God forbid, or, you know, something happens, your health, or, and then you have to adjust your plan and you have to change the route and adjust the way you're going to get there. So it's not a, a fixed route. It's a dynamic route and things will change and new technologies will come and there'll be new approaches. So um, remain flexible, but, 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 kind of always have a plan. Um, also reporting, you know, look, once you've got to step one, let's look back. How have we done? Have, where are we percentage wise? OK, let's adjust the next steps coming up. So it's not just about doing it. It's about being seen to, to be doing it, be reporting it and to be constantly assessing and monitoring it. Excellent. Well, I think that's all for today. Um, so thank you to Andy and Jason for joining me today. Um, Thank thanks for listening to the Urban Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please join us for our next episode. Thank you very much. <laughs>